this cat and mouse business anyway. Go ahead, put the handcuffs on me. We quarreled and I shot him right through the head. We better get down to headquarters. Do you think I'd repeat that story at headquarters? All I gotta do is tell him what you said. And I'll deny it. And then who do you think will wind up behind the eight ball? Me or a cop who just got himself suspended? Now why don't you hop on your scooter, Sonny Boy, and blow? I've got to emote. Welcome to episode 68 of Sass Mouse Dame's podcast. I'm your host, Mega McGurk. I often think about an article from September 1932, an edition of Photoplay magazine. It was written by Helen Louise Walker under the headline, Hollywood is a woman's town. What crazy upside down world is this? The headline is a head melter. Just imagine what it would take to see a headline like that today. You might see a group of women once or twice a year on the cover of Vanity Fair, but then it still has that novelty factor, doesn't it? Helen Louise Walker reports that women run this factory town in 1932, where merchants grow rich from selling orchids and perfume. Instead of simple beach shacks, women have houses done in all white with built-in bars, glass-enclosed terraces, and white and pastel chintz seat covers. Hollywood is a town where women swim in ermine coats just for a lark. Not only does the decor suit their taste, women decide how men spend their free time. One poll quote says that occasionally a woman boss man escapes for a bit of camping and not dressing for dinner. Walker notes in the article, did you think any man would deliberately choose to sit around for an evening in a formal evening coat and a white tie working a jigsaw puzzle? Yet that's exactly what they do and like it at Connie Bennett's parties. Walker includes excerpts from an interview with Ronald Coleman. Coleman explains, Most of the women in here make just as much money as the men. They don't have to try and get along with the men because they're not dependent upon them. They can afford to be arbitrary. Coleman goes on to state that women who work in Hollywood can have things their own way, but that doesn't apply to idle women who sleep until noon and then just have lunch with their friends. If you were a, whim- a woman living any place else, else in the country and read this article, you might imagine a better life in Hollywood, a place where women could reach the top and live on their own terms. As long as women's pictures were profitable, you could depend on some percentage of women who had their own way, and another much larger group of women who aspired to that independent life made possible in the film colony. Studios produced women's pictures for three decades. They were popular box office hits, and as a result, women's tastes were catered to. If you look at the most profitable films of 1933, for example, a year after this article was published, nine of the top ten films at the American box office were women's pictures. You cannot tell the history of the studio era in Hollywood without women's pictures and the women who struggled to make it in the film industry. For three decades, women were top-billed moneymakers. I've chosen Nocturne for this episode because it follows the trajectory of women in Hollywood and shows us where they are in 1946. 
Hollywood is still a woman's town. Only we see the hardworking women who make the town run rather than the stars. The film's producer, Joan Harrison, began her career in pictures as a secretary and then a screenwriter for Alfred Hitchcock. Then over the years, she worked her way up to the front office, which was a rare position for women in the studio era. Harrison took a script that was originally about a veteran who gets roped into murder and instead gives us an insider's view of women who struggle in Hollywood. Women flocked to Hollywood in droves looking for the dream of an independent life, and through a variety of means, they found work, whether as waitress, shop girl, dance instructor, extras, mannequins, B-girls, or kept women. Nocturne doesn't romanticize the dream factory town. We don't see the stars. The audience sees everyone else, the legions who are just trying to make a living. Nocturne rattles the film noir stereotypes from the very beginning of the picture. If you're like me, weary of the tendency in film noir for hating women and reducing women's characterization to a static, two-dimensional virgin or whore, Nocturne is like the first time you rolled up to the perfume counter and found your signature scent when everything else reeks of tuberose. A dame with beautiful legs sits in the shadows as the picture opens, and a pianist composes a song he dedicates to her, the title song, Nocturne. And then before he finishes, he catches a bullet in the head, cut to police detectives on the scene. They pull a dame from the back of the house who checks all the boxes, a platinum blonde with a pinup figure wearing a nipped waist, full-length, glossy satin dressing gown. Is she the woman who is sitting in the chair? The wife? Another girlfriend? No, she's the maid. Myrna Dell enters wearing a scowl, which is as easy on the eyes as a silver fox stole. One of the patrol officers tells the detective, played by George Raft, that the dame was asleep in the back with plugs in her ears. I know, as soon as she identifies herself as the maid, that I'm in a different kind of picture. Usually, when we see a maid in a noir picture, she looks like Dorothy Adams, who plays Bessie, the maid, to Laura Hunt in Otto Preminger's Laura from 1944. It just so happens, too, that Dorothy Adams turns up later in this picture, only she's playing a nosy neighbor, not the maid. Maids in noir look like Virginia Farmer, who plays Molly in A Woman's Secret, gray hair in a bun. Maids are stock figures during noir in Hollywood. They are sexless frumps who wouldn't know glamour if George Harrell and all the Westmores ran them over with their car. Or they're the hard-working African-American women, like Butterfly McQueen and Mildred Pierce, who work so hard she couldn't possibly have time to have her own social life or a boyfriend. But not Myrna Dell. Her character snarls at cops as though she had an early call at the studio the next morning. She looks like a star, not a housemaid. And once you see Myrna Dell, you realize how every beautiful dame from small towns all over America migrated to Hollywood looking to become a star. 
But in 1946, for every Rita Hayworth, there were thousands who never made it, and they have to eat too. In Hollywood, competition is fierce, and platinum blonde bombshells dust and vacuum the swell joints in the hills. The glamour puss on screen explains the earplugs by saying, I can't stand the guy's music. It's icky. She may be part of the domestic staff, but she's not servile. She's a sass mouth. The woman who looks ready for a photo shoot makes disparaging comments about her employer and how nothing would surprise her with what goes on around this place. Meanwhile, as the scene unfolds, we can see a gallery of women's glamour portraits hanging on the wall behind the crime scene. George Raff breaks the silence by questioning the blonde about her real name. The roughest he gets with any dame in this picture is when he grabs her arm, lifts the sleeve, and reveals a red scar that snakes around the inside of her arm. She was the hotel maid who jumped out of a window after she stole an expensive piece of jewelry. He pegs her. Aside from a good memory, it tells us that George Raft pays attention to women when other noir detectives couldn't pick a maid out of a lineup. Mernadelle was wasted in horse operas for most of her career when clearly her talents were needed throwing acid-laced comments at men. She explains the motive for the murder when she says, He was a lady killer, but don't get any ideas. I ain't no lady. The dead man, it seems, called every woman in his life Dolores. In another scene, Myrna's character Susan tells George Raft, Once he even called me Dolores. The glamour portraits on the wall offer a rogues gallery of potential killers. The question for Detective Joe Warren, played by George Raft, is which dame murdered Vincent? The real question is, who wouldn't want to kill a man who calls every woman Dolores? He had it coming. Nocturne stitches together one scene after another of George Raft talking to women. I try to think of another actor in noir who could pull this off, who could spend so much time with all kinds of women who would not resort to the usual tough guy routine of smacking women around or meeting them with contempt or using that old upstage trick. George Raft has presence, and he's rare in a leading man in noir without a hint of demons trailing him. George Raft never steps on a woman's lines. He never distracts the audience with bits of business to draw their eye away to himself. And throughout his career, he was adamantly opposed to laying a violent hand on a woman in any kind of scene. George Raft likes women, and you can see it in every scene. The toughest thing he does, as I said, was roll up a woman's sleeve. Joe Warren lives at home with his mother, who's played by Mabel Page. He talks through the case with her, leaving the wheels spinning with his mother, who eventually unravels the plot. She solves the riddle with a friend, another pensioner lady who comes for tea, Mrs. O'Rourke, played by acting coach Virginia Edwards. The older ladies reenact the crime, while the detective interrupts them, struggling with a revolver. During his investigation, George Raft meets various hardworking women. Each one has a sass mouth, the default setting for women who work in the factory town. 
women get the better of Raft. They have the last line, and they challenge his badge and authority at every turn. They tell him what he doesn't know. Following up on one of the suspects from the Glamour Puss Rogues Gallery, he meets instead with Queenie Smith, who's short, older, in a grubby bathrobe, rinsing her teeth in a flophouse with scotch in the morning. She informs him that the girl he's looking for killed herself in the bed he just sat down on. There's only one bed in the dingy room. Two women in one bed doesn't look cute or cozy as it did for, say, Joan Blondell and Barbara Stanwyck, or Kay Francis and Lillian Tashman in Depression-era pre-codes. Now it looks like the last stop before Skid Row. Joe Warren questions a waitress and a greasy spoon in another scene. She was among the glamour portraits in the successful songwriter's house, and now she's pouring coffee in a place that has a player piano for entertainment. The creepy boss strolls over with an alibi that puts her in his bed the night Vincent was murdered. By the time Detective Joe Warren gets to Lynn Barry, he has trouble distinguishing a regular hard-boiled dame from a killer. From the first moment she appears on screen, it's clear why the songwriter-slash-piano player wanted to add her to his collection. Lynn Barry has a figure that could bend sound. Lynn Barry makes her introduction in the swimming pool, doing laps. The actress spent years posing for cheesecake publicity shots in a bathing suit and slips out of the water with as much grace as Esther Williams. Raft is watching from above and tosses a towel down to Lynn. Trying to take the direct route, he sneaks up behind her and asks, Tell me, uh, why'd you kill him? Without missing a beat, Lynn snaps, Which one? I'm going to take more than a few questions. It's going to take more than a few questions to rattle this glamorous dame. As she gently pats her skin dry, Raft looks her over with the practice eye of a man who knows how to be discreet. Oh, but he looks. He says, I liked your bathing suit. Prelude to a kiss. As Frances Ransom, Lynn Barry stretches out her long spine, self-possessed in a malleot, and gives him the brush off. Another man saunters by to speak to her, and Raft pushes him with one arm into the pool. That gets her attention. She says maybe he's not as dull as she thought. Lynn Barry takes the usual stereotypes of women in noir and terms them arse over tea kettle. She doesn't bat lashes at him, quiver her lips, fill her eyes with tears, or make any appeal to his sympathy. She doesn't dip into the usual feminine tricks to keep a man guessing. She plays it hard-boiled, start to finish. In one scene, Raft turns up at her posh flat. She resists his attempt to shame her and categorize her as a kept woman. He asks about her glamorous outfit. She replies that she ran it up on a sewing machine. She answers another question about who pays for her foxhole with, Can I help it if people give me things? Francis Ransom drips sarcasm when he offers to take her out on the town on the city's dime. Imagine having your hand held by a city. 
Eventually, she agrees to go along if he gets her mink from the closet, and then she tells him not to worry, they'll go Dutch. In Noir, the tough-talking dame is always the one who pulled the trigger. The producer, Joan Harrison, had something much better up her sleeve. My favorite scene in Nocturne makes the most of the location shots of Hollywood. Scenes in the picture include um, shots of the Gotham Deli, the Brown Derby, and the Pantages Theater. But the best is when George Raft visits RKO Studio, goes through the front gate on Marathon Street under the archway, the sign reading RKO Radio Pictures Incorporated. A security guard stops Raft and questions him at the gate, and then Raft walks into the soundstage for Sinbad. In real life, it was the set for Sinbad the Sailor, the 1947 picture starring Maureen O'Hara and Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Just like that, I'm in heaven. The camera pulls back for a shot of George Raft standing in front of the long doors in suit and fedora outlined by the mixture of sunlight and shadow as the wide studio doors swing down. As he walks across the set, the camera picks up the space jammed with hardworking professionals. The wardrobe girl checking costumes on a rack. A crew member checking the lighting. The camera glides past the long galleon ship on dry dock and groups of women extras huddled with their veils and gossamer harem costumes. The set is alive with activity. The scene cuts to Lynn Barry, wearing an ornate floral headdress, a crop top, and chiffon skirt, taking a coffee break with another extra. The extra remarks to Frances Ransom about the upside of costume pictures. You don't wear out your own clothes. This remark contains a bit of foreshadowing for Lynn Barry's real life. In 1951, she starred in her first television show, which was called The Detective's Wife. It was shot in Universal Studio. Lynn was shocked when she signed for the TV show to discover that there was no wardrobe for the TV program. She had to use her own clothes. For one episode, she needed 19 different outfits. When she asked her producer, If she would at least have help transporting the clothes to the studio, he replied that a girl from wardrobe would meet her car when she arrived in the morning. That was it. Anyway, back to the scene in Nocturne. Francis and the extra sit next to the services table on the soundstage. Raft approaches and orders a coffee. He asks asks how much. The man running the catering table tells him it's a dime which Raft tosses into the kitty cup. There's no free lunch in Hollywood, not even a free cup of coffee for hardworking extras. Not only is it not free, it's for profit. In the greasy spoon where Joe Warren visited the suspect, coffee was only a nickel. The studio charges double. Detective Warren has more questions for the murder suspect, Francis Ransom. Lynn serves up better dialogue than anything in the script for Sinbad. Sassmouths represent. She snaps, I think your needle's stuck or else you just can't live without me. 
She soon tires of the third degree more questions and takes her leave by saying, why don't you hop on your scooter, sonny boy, and blow? I've got to emote. You can bet I'll be borrowing. I've got to emote for a dramatic exit. In each scene they have together, Lynn Barry gets the best of George Raft. And what's more, he likes it. In true woman's picture fashion, all of the best lines go to to Lynn Barry. George Raft is not unsexed or emasculated by a woman with brains, savvy, and ambition. He's intrigued. There are so many reasons to love Nocturne. Dorothy Adams, who played Bessie and Laura that I mentioned before, plays Frances Ransom's neighbor, who shows up to scold, you should be ashamed of yourselves. In another fight scene, there's a great bit of business with a coffee pot several years ahead of the standout use of one in Fritz Lang's The Big Heat. Myrna Dell has another great scene where George Raft returns to the composer's house with more questions about who Dolores might be. Myrna Dell says, do you think I'm interested in girls? From the tip of her red nails to the roots of her platinum hair, Myrna Dell Susan telegraphs her ambitions to snare an influential man. George Raft throws a great punch on screen and seems like every time he meets another man, he's throwing one. I love to watch him clean a man's clock. He socks men right in the kisser, yet he's a kitten with women. There's a funny little scene where his detective goes to a dancing school and questions one of the instructors. He messes up the steps and the dance instructor says he'll never get it. George Raft made his name first as a dancer, long before he made it into pictures. During the 1920s, he was a dancer in nightclubs owned by Texas Guinan in New York City, and he appeared in Broadway reviews. His day usually began in the afternoon, where he would dance in afternoon tea establishments that were designed for women to pay for male company, if you know what I mean. Women patrons would be sat at a table, order tea, and then be given a menu where they could select one of the gigolos who were there to dance with them and negotiate prices for sexual favors. Rudy Valentino also worked in the afternoon tea clubs. They shared the same sort of smoldering patent leather good looks. I'll still argue that the closest thing Hollywood made to pornography was Bolero with George Raft and Carol Lombard. But I digress. After the dance instructor in Nocturne tells Raft he can't dance, she scoffs at the idea that he could be working on the force. Raft says, how do you know I'm not a detective? She replies, don't be silly. Whoever heard of a detective with his hat off? Nocturne was a critical and commercial success. It has a snappy pace, great dialogue, eye candy location shots, swoon merchant George Raft, and a host of sassmouth dames led by Lynn Barry, who reminds viewers that Hollywood is still a woman's town. If you hear the name Lynn Barry, you might draw a blank at first, but trust me, you've seen her many times in pictures from the studio era. 
Lynn found her way into pictures when she was only 13 years old. She was prompted by her fame-hungry mother into lying about her age. In the first film she made, Lynn Barry played one of the showgirls in Dancing Lady, which starred Joan Crawford and Clark Gable from 1933. After another small part at Metro, she was signed by Fox Studio on a standard seven-year contract at $50 a week. Lynn was there for the big event when Fox merged with 20th Century Pictures and became 20th Century Fox, with Daryl Zanuck as vice president and head of production. Lynn Barry spoke frankly about Zanuck's reputation as studio head. His secretary's lives were pure hell, being chased around desks, she said. Whenever Lynn was called into his office to discuss the future of her career, she came protected with bodyguards. Because she wasn't ravaged by studio wolves, she may have had trouble identifying them as one of her future husbands became. While Lynn worked her way through bit parts as a featured player, a time span of about four years in the 30s, she spent any free time she had on other sets watching. Lynn noted that she loved to watch Loretta Young filming a picture. She said Loretta knew more about the camera than the cameraman. Lynn was often typecast as the competition for leading ladies. She played the heavy in the sister school of Claire Dodd and Gail Patrick, the Ralph Bellamy type of women who never land their man. Lynn recalled, I made a career of leering at Linda Darnell, Betty Grable, and Alice Faye. Usually, I'd corner a woman backstage and say to her in a very nasty tone, He's mine, all mine, you see. I've got him, and you'll never take him away from me. Then I'd stalk away, leaving Linda or Betty or Alice to slowly begin to cry in gorgeous Technicolor, close up. She was great as the dame to look out for in Hotel for Women, Linda Darnell's first picture. Lynn Barry was also great as the, um, as the competition in Always Goodbye in a love triangle with Barbara Stanwyck and Herbert Marshall. Between 1937 and 1941, Lynn Barry's biographer estimates that she posed for 5,000 cheesecake pictures. Lynn's brief appearance in the swimsuit in her introduction reminds us of why she was billed as the girl with the million-dollar figure. Her stardom rose in musicals such as Sun Valley Serenade and Orchestra Wives, but one of her best roles as a leading lady is The Magnificent Dope from 1942, where she has to pick between Don Amici and Henry Fonda. Nice work if you can get it definitely seek that one out. Fox loaned her out for Nocturne to RKO. Lynn recalled of working with producer Joan Harrison. She had great taste. She was with me for every pin they put in my suits. A man says, oh, you know, put her in something gray. Many of them don't give a damn. But a woman knows what a woman needs for a part, whether it's going to photograph or not. Gee, I wish there were more women producers, especially for women. Although Lynn had one of the longest tenures in 20th Century Fox, she fell out of favor with Daryl Zanuck. Lynn's rocky marriage to her second husband, Sid Luft, 
a low-light parasite who never earned a dime of his own, probably played a part. Lynn had always done a lot of work in radio, and when she left Fox and went freelance, she was a steady performer in radio. Then she made the move to television with the, the detective's wife and then another show called Boss Lady where she was the chief executive for a construction company and read the Wall Street Journal. It sounds like a pinstripe suit dream. Christina Lane recently published an excellent biography called Phantom Lady. Hollywood producer Joan Harrison, Forgotten Woman Behind Hitchcock. Lane's book recovers the important role that Joan Harrison played in the studio era. Lane begins with how Hitchcock hired Joan Harrison when she answered his advert for a secretary, because after he cut short the interview to go to lunch, he invited her and she spent the time dishing over the gory details of interesting murder cases in between bites. She wasn't put off by the squeamish details, as he felt many women would have been. Murder was a bit of a hobby for Joan Harrison. She read the reports of criminal deeds with relish and collected the facts like other girls might have on the biographies of movie stars. Joan sat in on grisly trials in the Old Bailey, just like Hitch had done. She was not a secretary for long. Joan didn't actually have a knack for administrative details, but Hitchcock recognized she had an eye for story, plot, and character development, which was unique. Christina Lane's study presents Joan Harrison's years with Hitchcock as a postgraduate education in film, from working on The Man Who Knew Too Much in 1935 through Saboteur in 1942. She developed her talent with a blend of bold women on the screen, inventive plots, and a mix of macabre humor. When she struck out on her own as an independent producer with Universal, she made the hit picture Phantom Lady in 1944. Next was The Strange Affair of Uncle Harry in 1945. When the studio changed the ending against her wishes to The Strange Affair of Uncle Harry, she walked out on her contract with Universal, where she had had two secretaries and made $30,000 a picture. Determined to uphold her creative agency, she signed with RKO in 1946. She signed for a two-picture deal, making only 19500 for each picture. And although she took a, a cut in salary and settled for only one secretary, Joan Harrison felt RKO was more comfortable having women in the front office and that they would leave her alone. The first project that she produced is this mystery with George Raft and Lynn Barry. The following books helped me to write this episode. Foxy Lady, the authorized biography of Lynn Barry by Jeff Gordon. George Raft by Louis Yoblonsky. Phantom Lady, Hollywood producer Joan Harrison, Forgotten Woman, Behind Hitchcock by Christina Lane. Thanks so much for listening. Join me next time for episode 69 when I talk about Carol Landis in Turnabout from 1940. Thanks very much.